Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Marat Grinberg for an exciting conversation about how the Holocaust is portrayed and represented in popular culture, particularly in contemporary television. Listen in as we dive into how the Holocaust has played a role in the recent TV landscape, from the plot against America, the recent adaptation of Philip Roth's novel, and The Man in the High Castle, to Hunters and Judah and beyond. How do we depict history and popular culture? How does TV and other popular media play a role in shaping the historical viewpoints of everyday people? And what is the relationship between historical truth and plain fiction? Marat Grinberg is a scholar of Jewish and Russian literature and culture, and of cinema, and he's an associate professor of Russian and humanities at Reed College. His next book, forthcoming from Brandeis University Press in 2022, is titled The Soviet Jewish Bookshelf, Jewish Culture and Identity Between the Lines. And he's also written a fantastic chapter on this topic that we're going to talk about today, about contemporary TV and the Holocaust, which is titled Representing the Holocaust and Jewishness in Contemporary Television. And it's in the 2021 book, The Holocaust Across Borders, Trauma, Atrocity, and Representation in Literature and Culture. This whole issue of Holocaust representation, which we're going to get into today, is such a huge topic. How do we tell the story of the Holocaust? And to borrow the phrase from the early 1990s conference on the topic, what are the, quote, limits of representation? That is to say, what are the boundary lines for how we talk about the Holocaust? The development of contemporary TV that engages with the Holocaust and other related topics in the genres of alternate history, science fiction, and even vampires stretch the limits of how we can talk about historical events. And it has even led to some criticism that these depictions are so ahistorical that they lead to misinformation or otherwise disrespect the deeply personal histories and experiences related to the Holocaust. Altogether, recent depictions in shows like The Man in the High Castle, an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's book of the same title that tells an alternate history in which the Nazis won World War II, or Hunters, a show about Nazi hunters in the 70s, raise very important and challenging questions about the meaning and value of history. How does history inform these fictional accounts? How does fiction treat history respectfully? In what ways does history matter as we think about contemporary culture? And how does the changing landscape of our media, streaming services and all that, affect the way that the Holocaust finds its way into the worldwide media that we consume? Thanks so much for listening in. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Marat Grimberg about how the Holocaust has been and continues to be represented and portrayed in contemporary TV. Hi, Marat. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into these issues because I do think that, that the issue of the representation of the Holocaust and other historical topics in television, other kinds of media is just really important. It's really fascinating and really critical for us to understand the public perception of the past in general, and especially these kinds of, of historical issues. So I thought maybe we might even just start with this general topic, which is to say, you know, why do you think that it's so important for us to engage with and think about this question of the representation of the past in TV and other media and the Holocaust in particular? Not just the general public, but all of us, we perceive history through the lens of representation, right? Again, through images, uh, through texts, uh, through prose, verse, uh, etc. So it's inescapable. And, and I think representation is, uh, is an incredibly rich window onto, onto history, but that raises all sorts of issues about authenticity, veracity, and kind of one of the big issues and Holocaust representation is, well, even the legitimacy of it, some have raised that, a lot of people have raised that question from a philosophical standpoint, historical, ontological, 
And if it is legitimate, if it is possible, allowed, then how does one uh, do that? And there is a long, long history of that. I think, you know, to a lot of people, certainly in the, in the general audience, when they think about Holocaust representation, they think about the more recent, you know, films, like Schindler's List. But in fact, that stretches much, much farther back. I mean, there are films dealing with the Holocaust that are made right at the end of World War II, immediately after World War II, you know, in Poland, uh, in the United States, in the Soviet Union. So there is a long history of that, you know, of tackling the Holocaust through cinema, through, through cinematic image. Yeah, I mean, I think that you brought up a, a couple of like really important points, which is that, first of all, this question of the representation of historical events in all kinds of media, uh, ranging from, I don't know, Shakespearean plays all the way up until the present, even before that, you know, this is tremendous fodder for writers and, and anybody really interested in in cultural production to try to draw upon the events of the past and, you know, whether as a, just strictly speaking as a, as a setting you know, or trying to retell events, that this is something that, that has been going on for quite a long time and that really reflects the general cultural interests of the time in which people are producing things. Part of what's interesting about the Holocaust in this context is you know, there's so much that's been made, you know, in recent decades, even before that, that is seeking to present the Holocaust in a vividly visual form, TV and movies in particular. I would argue probably precisely because the Holocaust has become such a central point of reference for Americans in particular, but beyond that as well. That's part of the reason why the Holocaust has become such a major point of representation. Right. Yeah. And, and you're raising a, I think, re really important question in terms of how representation images of the Holocaust are conditioned by uh, the place where they're produced, right, by the by their own historical setting, and you know, having done quite a bit of work on you know the Soviet representation uh, of the Holocaust, you know, the rare examples of that that we have in Soviet cinema, because clearly the Soviet authorities were not terribly interested in talking about the Holocaust as a as a Jewish catastrophe, or or if you look at some of the early French films dealing with the Holocaust, or Yiddish cinema. And of course, there are, there are links between all of them. I think ultimately they all do share kind of common visual vocabulary, uh, common, you know, sort of reference points. But at the same time, there are also specificities that really, really matter. And those are, I think, are really important to pay attention to for, you know, us as scholars, but also for the audience receiving and, and, and watching these uh, films and images. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about things like uh, The Plot Against America, for instance, where it was a 2004 novel by Philip Roth and then recently was remade into a television series. And the images which are used in the TV series, particularly in the ending, you know, they are reflective of the particular context of you know, the era of the Trump presidency, you know, at, at the same time also drawing upon iconic imagery of the Holocaust. You know, for instance, images of you know, piles of shoes, you know, and so on and so forth, which many scholars have reflected on in terms of how the Holocaust is presented to the public at places like, you know, Holocaust museums and so on and so forth, but also in, in film. Uh, and so part of what's interesting here is the way in which the representation of the Holocaust draws upon iconic, quote unquote, timeless imagery in a certain way, but also brings in new aspects that relate to its own particular time and place. Right. And that's both fascinating, right? But it's also, I think, a kind of a slippery slope, right? That is when the director, the writer, uh, whoever, right, clearly having sort of what is happening today at the foreground of, you know, of their mind. And, and what does that do to the historical events that they're representing? Is it, does it sort of just completely obfuscate them? Are they only used as a, as a, as a springboard? And when you're talking about such an enormous event as the Holocaust, if that happens, that, that becomes problematic and raises all sorts of issues. And I think you brought up the plot against America. Is a, I think they actually do it really well. I think that's a, that's a good example of sort of how that relationship between the present and the past. And here it's also happening by, you know, Philip Roth text. I think that's done there quite fruitfully. Or another TV series that we may discuss is, you know, Hunters, which is doing this link between the present moment and the past in, in a, doing it very, very forceful manner. 
And sometimes it's sort of over the top. You know, one of the characters who is a the neo-Nazi, he screams out, Jews will not replace us. You know, clearly kind of the phrase that is familiar to all of us, but, I, but it's just done so forcefully and so blatantly that you start wondering, you know, where's that, where's that history? Where's that, where's that Holocaust? Is it actually there, right? Or is it, again, just sort of arguing about perhaps that sort of history is this one unending moment and, you know, we're always in it together at the same time, but one can do it in a nuanced way or one can do it in a very blatant and forceful way. And then again, it's up to the audience to decide what works, right? I mean, ultimately, it's all about the reception and, and, and the audience. We've already mentioned uh, a couple of, of recent you know, cultural productions, a couple of recent TV that relate in some ways very much indirectly to the Holocaust, right? The Plot Against America, in many respects, uh, both the novel and the TV series, elides the events of the Holocaust you know, that take place in Europe itself, right, with the focus on the U.S., uh, same thing with Hunters, which is taking place decades after the Holocaust. Part of what's interesting about that is that it indicates some of the ways in which the Holocaust is this kind of touchstone for these kinds of TV series and other kinds of novels, etc., but is not always necessarily the focus, the direct focus in terms of the historical events of, say, 1939 to 1945. This leads me to maybe we can broaden our lens a little bit and just think, broadly speaking, about when we talk about Holocaust representation, we mean a lot of different things, right? And so what then is the place of the Holocaust in the American TV landscape uh, in sort of the most general terms, but also more specifically, how is it that that the Holocaust has become, as we've mentioned, a really critical component of many different cultural productions? And why does it remain so today? I think one key issue to keep in mind here is this you know, idea of the Holocaust representation as a sort of as a belated phenomenon, right? So which was you know the dominant paradigm in, in in literary studies dealing with the Holocaust, but also in cinematic visual studies. That is the idea because the Holocaust is an event of such magnitude, it produces this post-traumatic effect, right? And it just takes people, artists, writers, filmmakers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just a really long time to come to it. Yeah. And and certainly, you know, as we know, the Holocaust does come. It does take quite a bit of time for the general public in the West. I mean, in the Soviet case is, is different, but to start dealing with the Holocaust, right? And then the question is, how do they deal with the Holocaust? But as we now know, thanks to a lot of, you know, recent scholarship that's been done, is that, you know, Jews in Yiddish, but not just in Yiddish, have started, you know, dealing with the Holocaust memory and what that event means, you know, right there and then, during the war and sort of immediately after the war. When you look at the you know representation of the Holocaust in the American context, again, there is so much of it in the immediate aftermath of the war, in the Yiddish sphere, in the Jewish sphere. But there are also a number of examples where it's broader. And Jeffrey Chandler has has documented a lot of that kind of that early representation of the Holocaust in TV, uh, in American television, in his book, which came out I think 1999 or so. But then the question is, you know, what Holocaust? are they talking about if you look at these early representations of it in american television right are they talking about the holocaust as a as a jewish event right as a catastrophe that befell the jewish people or are they talking about it in much more universalist terms right and of course i mean we're using the term holocaust which comes kind of later into you know into vogue and often you know, in these early instances of of the holocaust in american television it is about the war in general Right. And without emphasizing the specificity of the Jewish specificity, although there are, you know, there are obviously exceptions. I'm thinking of so Sidney Lumet, right, the great American Jewish director. He makes a version of the Dibuk, the famous Yiddish play, you know, late 1950s, maybe early 1960s for television. And uh, first of all, I mean, it's a clearly very it's, it's a just Jewish material. Right. Period. But he directly inserts uh, references to the Holocaust in there, allusions to the Holocaust. And, and you know, him coming from a, a family of Yiddish actors, his father was a pretty well-known Yiddish actor, and this is how Lumet started. And that Jewish specificity is right there and then, but also the general American public watching his film on television would see that Jewish, rich Jewish subtext and content and context. So I think and that the universal versus the specifically Jewish is sort of key there. You know, one big moment that's often cited 
in the, in the history of Holocaust representation on television is the uh, TV series The Holocaust, right, which had kind of this enormous impact, not just in the United States, but also in West Germany. A lot, you know, have talked about the, the, that TV series as something that pushed, you know, the German public to really start confronting the Holocaust on a larger scale. Uh, and another, I think, key kind of issue to keep in mind here is the issue of, you know, documentary footage. You know, we talked about representation and, and sort of images, but of course, photographic image is such a pivotal part of what we think about the Holocaust and, and the Holocaust representation and, and what to do with the documentary footage. Do you include it? Do you not include it? How do you do that? Yeah. And what does that do? Does that add that objective piece of evidence, right? Or as we now understand, you know, documentary footage is never really objective. There is somebody who's taking that picture or somebody who's standing behind the camera. And, and of course, all of that is, again, influenced by, by the moment when it's done, where it's done, and, and who is doing it. You know, what's interesting about the way that you're talking about the question of the Holocaust in television and film is that it echoes in certain ways a similar kind of conversation that many historians have had about the Holocaust in general, um, which is the so-called myth of silence, this notion that, that after the Holocaust, many people you know, Holocaust survivors in particular didn't want to talk about it for many years. When, of course, you know, a great deal of research has has indicated many ways in which that's not exactly true. The Holocaust was widely discussed. And people look in particular, you mentioned the 1978 series Holocaust, which the, the narrative of the myth of silence in particular, you know, has this idea of the Holocaust on network television as a pivotal moment when it enters into the public conversation as a result of the fact that, you know, 1978, there are three networks and all of a sudden one third of the American public is is seeing this this miniseries. On the one hand, you know, you're indicating the ways in which the same scholarly conversation about the so-called myth of silence and how it's wasn't really accurate, you know, is playing out also in the conversation about Holocaust representation on TV. And yet at the same time, you're also indicating the ways in which some of these same touchstones are actually really important, you know, as we want to understand the transformation of the discussion of the Holocaust in the American public sphere. And I'm just thinking kind of what's, what's permitted, right? What's, what's allowed when it comes to, uh, when it comes to kind of the Holocaust imagery, again, especially in television, because it has such an enormous audience, especially if we're thinking about the contemporary, you know, TV series, where it's really not, I mean, it's not television, it's streaming on all these multiple uh, streaming channels that, you know, millions and millions have, have access to. So both in Hunters and in Man in the High Castle, another really interesting series adaptation of Philip K. Dick's uh, famous novel, there are scenes that deal with the gas chamber. Some are pretty graphic. So in Hunters, it is, it is pretty graphic, right? Hunters is about these Jewish hunters, you know, in the 1970s, and they're hunting after the former Nazi criminals. They find them and they essentially kill them and kill them in the way that they did their own killing during the war. Yeah. Uh, and so they find this the woman, it's in the early, early episodes, and who was, I think she was a scientist, as a chemist in, in, in Nazi Germany. And so they find her and they guess her in her shower, right? So she's about to take a shower. Instead of water, there is a Zyklon B coming up. A lot of people have said that it's inadmissible and, and really criticized that because it's taken something that is just, you know, so horrific and also kind of that, you know, heartland of the Holocaust. Of course, we don't have images from the inside of the gas chambers, which, you know, that allowed the deniers of the Holocaust to say that, you know, to make their claim and say, we just don't have that footage. So it never uh, took place. But also that idea that there is this absence at the heart of the Holocaust is a huge issue for somebody like Claude Lanzmann, right? Of course, the French filmmaker who made the eight-hour documentary Shaw, right? Which does not use a single piece of documentary footage, yeah, which is really interesting in itself. But for him, that absence, that there is no footage from the gas chamber, which he sees as the kind of the locus and the heartland of the Holocaust, he said, that's why all the rest documentary footage really doesn't matter because we don't have that one piece of evidence, right? Or or uh, just to give another example, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, right? The, the Grinch, the great French filmmaker of the, of the new wave that had an interesting relationship with the Jews and kind of the Holocaust in general. But he said, had we found that footage from the gas chamber, right? 
it would have to be destroyed. You know, Hunters produced just a couple a year ago by Amazon, and you have this gas chamber scene done against this Nazi character, right? And what done in a pretty playful way, I have to say. And so it brings up all sorts of issues. And again, it's up to the audience to decide. And and then there is a gas chamber scene also in the Man in the High Castle. You don't see what's happening inside the guest chamber. So they keep that kind of absence there. Yeah, I want to say it's Annette Viviorka who writes about this, you know, this this notion that that fundamentally we have all sorts of memoirs and other kinds of documents that present us with the victim's perspective on life in the camps or in the ghettos and et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, there are no witnesses to the gas chamber in the sense that everybody who was in the gas chamber was murdered. So there's nobody left to tell that story from a direct eyewitness account. So there's that fundamental paradox of the events of the gas chamber and their inability to be documented in a certain sense. So part of what's interesting, like you mentioned in Hunters, is that as a result, these kinds of images are not drawing upon and making reference to documentary footage or memoirs or anything like that, but actually to other dramatized representations. In this case, for instance, the the famous scene in Schindler's List of the gas chambers and so on and so forth. You know, and so what you end up with is this circular relationship, you might say, you know, between these different fictionalized or dramatized representations of the Holocaust that are unable to directly reference the historical events themselves. Right. That's, I think you're making the key point. It's because, again, we have this long history of Holocaust representation. And, and because ultimately, you know, be it a TV series, be it a film, be it a text, it exists within its own kind of artistic universe, right? And, and if it's the text, we'll, we'll have to talk about the intertextual links and how that text draws on its predecessors. But the same is true of television and film. And I think, yes, these, uh, the creators of these shows are very much aware of that history of the Holocaust imagery representation, right? Just a, a huge vocabulary that they have in front of them when it comes to images and tropes, uh, allusions, et cetera, et cetera. And really drawing on that, which then, though, sort of in a, in a more sort of postmodern way, raises the question of the, but where is history then, right? And when it's a history, again, of this enormous event whose authenticity, veracity have been attacked by Holocaust deniers, by, you know, anti-Semites of all sorts of shapes and sizes, right? Where's that history? I mean, you know, somebody like, you know, Ali Wiesel, who kept on making that case that it is that if you're making a film about the Holocaust, if you're writing a book about the Holocaust, which he probably saw as pretty illegitimate in most cases, but if you are doing that, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to be as precise with that history, right? As careful, as attentive as it is possible. And again, to him, in most cases, that's just not possible. And only those who were there can do that. You know, in many ways, I think that's the core issue at stake in, in, in our conversation about, you know, why does history matter when we're talking about TV and, and movies and so on, um, and vice versa. But before we get there, I think it might be useful for us to kind of sketch out a little bit more about how the Holocaust is being represented you know, in these kinds of TV shows, you know, movies, etc. You know, when you're looking at something like The Man in the High Castle or Judah Hunters, really, any one of these, especially some of the more recent series that have been produced specifically for streaming services, which we can also talk about how streaming has affected this. What are some of the common themes or some of the common threads that you see that are tying together these recent representations of the Holocaust or Holocaust adjacent or World War II adjacent TV series and so on and so forth? What is it that is perhaps characteristic or significant about about these developments that perhaps are different from what came before you know obviously they're all related to things like schindler's list and other earlier representations but is there something new about these representations and what's going on here in your view when you look at these tv series etc the man in the high castle right uh he imagines this an alternative uh history where the allies have lost the war and the united states is divided between the nazis and the imperial uh, Japan, yeah. So the Japan controls uh, the West Coast. The Nazis are on the East Coast, and there are some states in between that are sort of this neutral zone. Again, because it's Philip K. Dick, it's just fascinating, right? And the show, I think, catches that well. We're never we're never sure which reality is actually the actual reality, 
and then and then so that's kind of the the premise of the of the man in the high castle the way that the show really goes beyond the book is first of all in the book there's this writer who's written a book where he describes the reality where the allies win the war right so kind of the text is an antidote against this perhaps fake reality whereas in the tv series it's the image right it's the cinematic image right the man in the high castle makes all these movies which have all this footage about the allies winning the war because he and a number of other characters have access into this kind of parallel reality parallel universe but so much of the series is about trying to defeat essentially the nazis and the japanese and see how we can reverse this reality hunters is just kind of this inc- i have to say you know a lot of people didn't like it when i when i told some of my colleagues my friends that i was writing about the series and actually having fun writing about the series they they were quite dismayed and they said, oh, you know, we just couldn't stand it. It's, it's just schlock and et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of it is schlocky, but it's schlocky in a fun way. You know, it's very kitschy, but again, kitschy in a sort of, it's, it's aware of its kitschiness and its schlockiness, you know, which doesn't make it, uh, doesn't make it pretentious. But it is about these uh, Nazi hunters, Jewish Nazi hunters, not just Jewish, right? But uh, there's, there's a black character and, you know, hunting after these uh, Nazis and, and kind of exerting their revenge. I think what unites all of them is how they're trying to merge all these contexts, historical context, visual context, right? Because there is just all these multiplicity of sources in front of them, illusions in front of them. And how they're juggling all of that at the same time, I think, is can this key link between these shows. And second, of course, is how they're reflecting the current moment. Uh, and as I said, I think Hunters does it extremely forcefully, extremely blatantly. Both the men in the High Castle and the Hunters are very much aware of the history of racism in the United States and the way that it's playing out today. So in the men in the High Castle, that series really intertwines the history of persecution, even in the case of that, in the case of the series, genocide against the blacks in the United States and against the Jews. Hunters plays with that as well, right? So it is, you know, Michael Rothberg's term, kind of multidirectional memory, right? It is sort of seeing the Holocaust through anti-Black history in the United States, right? So seeing racism through the Holocaust and the Holocaust through racism and seeing how that plays out. I think The Man in the High Castle does it quite powerfully and interestingly. Again, Hunters is uneven, but ultimately I think it also does it in interesting ways, much more playful. Because, again, it draws, you know, on all this multiplicity of genres, you know, comic book genre, you know, the, you know, that whole year of the 70s, which some, you know, have sort of found distasteful. But I think it's the way that it juggles all of that is what makes it interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what's interesting about this as well is that in, in these shows, you know, it creates kind of a stand-in environment for the viewer. It creates a possibility for the viewer to feel like they can they can root for somebody who you know, who can undo the horrible thing, you know, uh, you know, and uh, here I'm thinking about Man in the High Castle in particular, uh, where um, if I recall from the book, there's not really any sense that it's possible for the resistance, you know, against the Nazis and so on to actually prevail against them in this universe. You know, whereas in the TV show, it very much follows these, you know, individuals and these groups who are fighting against the, the Nazis and the Japanese. You know, the same thing with, with hunters, where you can root for the people who are hunting down the Nazis. You know, but you can see this in other representations as well. We think about like Inglorious Bastards, you know, the, the Tarantino film. And there it's it's much more explicit in many different ways. But you know, it's this way of in which these these representations of the Holocaust and of the Second World War create a way for people to insert themselves in the stories with their own fantasies about what it would have been like to, to in some sense, try to prevail against the bad guys. And I mean, part of what's interesting about Inglorious Bastards and Man in the High Castle as well is the use of the medium of film. You know, in particular, like I thought that was one of the most interesting things about Man in the High Castle. There's all sorts of problems with this as well, but it's this transformation of the book within the book right in the man in the high castle into newsreels right so it's film because it's now a visual medium the same thing in which the way in which i mean this is also tarantino's own kind of internal way of thinking about film right he's interested in the making of film um i think in the same way that a lot of historians are interested in the making of history right that's you know the interest in historiography you know you see this in a lot of professions but essentially the way in which the film itself you know the explosiveness of the film you know becomes a part of it but anyway why is the holocaust 
become such a sort of touchstone for a lot of these things you know, in the context of the past four, five, six, however many years. To some extent, the Holocaust has become, you know, such a huge and familiar part of American culture, that Holocaust footage that, although, you know, if you ask today's students, a lot of them actually are not aware of that. And, and they don't quite single out the Holocaust as a, you know, this kind of this specific catastrophe. But still, right, the Holocaust imagery is embedded within our culture, for better or worse. Uh, that produces an effect that it's, you know, something we know, something that's sort of tired and, and even perhaps cliche, as, 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 as horrible as it sounds. And so I was surprised that there were, you know, that there were all these TV streaming series that were interested in the Holocaust, but maybe that was sort of the intent, the, the intent that producers had. It's sort of to refresh the topic of the Holocaust and, and to bring it into contemporary discourse, again, the way that they link it to the issues of today, but also how to sort of refresh it, uh, refresh it visually. And and because you know, I mean, streaming and it's and it's the enormity of the audience and sort of and how you watch it, right? You watch it on a you know smaller screen, probably before you go to bed or something like that, or in between snacks. And I mean, it just it creates. We're all streaming these series and other ones, so we're we know kind of that the setting and the, and the context matter here. And I think also, uh, what Jewishness are we talking about when it comes to these TV series? So I think an interesting comparison is like if you think about the book, The Man in the High Castle. You know, Philip K. Dick, who was not Jewish, but who was had a very complicated relationship, sort of with Jews, Jewishness on the uh, Holocaust and and Israel in particular. Uh, but also seems to have been obsessed with all of these issues. And the Jewish character, the most interesting characters in, in The Man in the High Castle in the book, they're Jews, right? I mean, essentially, Jews have been exterminated in this post-war world where the Nazis have won. But there are some who have survived and who are kind of surviving in secret. And there is Yiddish and their speech. Anyway, you know, that Jewishness is something that you know, the Jewish audience of the 60s would immediately recognize, right? And that Jewishness is very authentic. Right. That's why I think, you know, Philip K. Dick, when he's writing Man in the High Castle, he's thinking of, you know, Ivy Zinger, for instance, or maybe the pawnbroker that also written at that time. And, and the film comes out, uh, comes out in the 60s. Uh, if you look at Jewishness in these series, that's very, very different. It's much more diluted. It doesn't have that cultural specificity. So one of the characters in, in Man in the High Castle in the TV series who becomes part of the resistance and who discovers that he is Jewish and kind of rediscovers his his Jewishness, he does it through having a bar mitzvah. Yeah. And so, you know, they choose bar mitzvah because that's something, you know, that the general audience will recognize as something, you know, I mean, that's the sign of Jewishness or they use terms like lechaim, you know, to life. And that becomes sort of the key Jewish phrase, which is a little ridiculous, right? Because, I mean, okay, so you say lechaim when you drink, but I mean, but, but clearly that's inserted there because of Fiddler on the Roof and so just Jewishness itself is much more diluted, and it just draws on all these very, very general references, which speaks to kind of the, the moment that we're in historically. Uh, I think Hunters actually is referencing many more sources when it comes to Jewishness, kind of religion, Hebrew, uh, you know, etc. But again, doing it in this sort of not particularly sort of terribly serious way. It's the question of audience again. It's the question of the of the current moment. Yeah, but what's interesting is that, and you you point that that out, kind of this idea of Jewish militancy, right? How do Jews respond, kind of, to the evil that's confronting them? And that's also very visible in the Judah series, right? How do Jews respond? And all of these shows, especially Hunters and Judah, are kind of foregrounding this idea of Jewish militancy. And I think Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards is, is is very important for both the creator of Judah and and for Hunters as a valor and legitimacy of violent Jewish defense, which is also a, you know kind of controversial issues because it invokes Israel and and politics around that. But what I liked about Hunters is that it takes this idea of Jewish militancy seriously and presenting as this kind of very viable and morally justified option. That, I think, was kind of the most salvageable piece in Hunters. And even if you disagree kind of with the position that the show is taken, you know, it's doing it in an interesting way. In and in it's kind of engages that issue artistically, interestingly, and, and I would say philosophically, interestingly. You've mentioned once or twice the question of audience. And the meaning of a television audience has changed 
you know, from 1978 to 2021, right? You know, Holocaust, the 78 series was produced, you know, like, like we mentioned, is network television. And all of these series that you're discussing here are from streaming services. Is there something perhaps going on here in terms of the rise of streaming services and the effort to target specific audiences you know, with series that that you know the executives think okay you know we need to make a tv show for you know a jewish audience we need to make a tv show for an evangelical audience we need to make a tv show for this audience for that audience in order to potentially draw in as many subscribers you know of diverse backgrounds as possible but what we're not going to try to reach all of them all the time um so is there something going on here in terms of the rise of streaming uh, streaming platforms, you know, here I think it's Hulu and Amazon are the ones that that you're focusing on, right? What is going on here in terms of streaming as it relates to the Holocaust, in, in the sense that you know, I don't know, like Chandler, Jeffrey Chandler's book, I think was was televising the Holocaust. I think if if somebody were to write the same book today, they might call it, yeah, they might call it streaming the Holocaust instead. Streaming the Holocaust, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you're right because you know I was thinking more in terms of. Just again, the enormity of the audience for these streaming, and so they're just they're hitting, you know, kind of the audience at large, right? Knowing that it is so big, that you know that they will they will hit quite a bit of it, you know, no matter kind of what they put out there. But maybe they're also keeping in mind kind of the more specific. Audience. I'm thinking of something like you know, what is it called, the talented Mrs. Meisel, right? Uh, which is which is also Amazon. I think that's kind of definitely keeping those kind of specific Jewish audiences in mind, although that, you know, reaches wider. Or I was just finished watching another Amazon series that's a few years back, but I, j- I just watched it now called The Red Oaks uh, with Paul Reiser. And it's about this Jewish country club in the 80s. Really, really good show. That's again, I think that's geared more toward these these Jewish audiences. I think with The Man in the High Castle, because it's, you know, it's Philip K. Dick, it's science fiction, it's the Nazis. <laughs> it's it's exciting, right? It's exciting, and so I think they're definitely hitting. They're they're thinking of a much broader audience than just uh, Jews, especially because the Holocaust is there, but it's not central. It's not central by any means. I think it becomes more central, especially through kind of this intertwining with racism in the last season, last two seasons or so. But Hunters too, right? Yes, it's the Holocaust. It's Jewish. It's just it's absolutely there. But because it is doing it in this very playful, multi-genre way, right? It is about superheroes. It's about the comic books. So it, it's it's hitting the audiences that are watching Marvel movies and DC comic movies. It's doing all of that at once. I think when it comes to f- certainly cinema in general, but especially television, right? We can't disentangle the commercial from the artistic, for better or for worse. Another thing I have to say, just as a scholar of literature also, right, or a scholar of cinema, when we talk about individual films, what made it difficult for me to watch on television, and that's why I gave up on some of the projects that I had, like I was obsessed at some point with Breaking Bad and I wanted to write a book about Breaking Bad and looking kind of at all the Dostoevskian moments and things like that. But what I realized why it was difficult for me to do it is because there is no single creator, ultimately. I mean, even with a show like Breaking Bad, you know, or Sopranos, or some other ones that you can, or Mad Men, there is a person who comes up with the idea and who is always there. But ultimately, you know, each episode is directed by a different person. There's just too many people. So this, you know, auteur theory, you know, when we're talking about cinema, sort of the director is an individual creator. And, you know, there are problems with that because cinema is also collaborative art, obviously. But at the same time, there is that, you know, kind of single mind that is outside of it. And you can think about of the director as a writer. With television, that's very, very different. And that's what made it difficult for me as an interpreter, you know, as a scholar of text and cinema tackling television, right? How do you kind of distill that aesthetic philosophy that that series puts forth or, you know, message for, you know, lack of a better term, that it conveys to the audience. Again, I think particularly Men in the High Castle ultimately does succeed in doing that, despite, again, this sort of multiplicity of people, maybe because, you know, there is there is a text behind it, as loose of an adaptation it is, but there is still that reference point you can come back to. Well, certainly the, the book itself is a single author work. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what is interesting here, you, know, you mentioned this a moment ago, is that, that many of these shows kind of only deal with the Holocaust in perhaps a tangential way. You know, so we've been talking here a lot about Holocaust representation, 
But it, there's a certain assumption here that that these TV shows fall under the realm of Holocaust representation, when in reality, the Holocaust is a part of the wider world that is, is being depicted in, in these shows. It's not really central in the same way that we could talk about Schindler's List, or we could talk about, you know, Lanzmann's Shoah, or any of these other kinds of things, which are much more squarely within the realm of of what we might describe as Holocaust representation. In what ways is the Holocaust important? As we look at these kinds of you know, media forms, you know, and, and does it maybe tell us something about how the view of the Holocaust is changing in the 21st century, you know, as people are seeing the Holocaust perhaps as something beyond the very specific experiences of the death camps? Right, absolutely. And so I think, you know, this multidirectionality is really key here, right? That the Holocaust is certainly part of all these contexts, uh, literary, visual, cultural, you know, historical, which again, for, you know, for some people, or maybe a lot of people, again, raises that question of the legitimacy of that approach. What happens to the actual event? Yes, one could argue that kind of in, in The Man in the High Castle, the Holocaust is tangential. I think in, in Hunter's, I mean, it is a Jewish show, right? I mean, it just, it's in your face, but it is a Jewish show. Not just thinking about the Holocaust in Hunter's, but thinking about the Holocaust memory and, and how one re- lives with that legacy, lives with that trauma. Uh, you know, lives with their past and what one does with that. And and Judah also, well, first of all, it's an Israeli, an Israeli series, which again, to the audience kind of indicates, you know, signals Jewishness, but it's also, you know, it's about Jewish vampire and it, and it draws on kind of folkloric uh, mythology in very idiosyncratic and playful ways on, on various Jewish sources, scriptural sources, but also kind of the, the history of cinematic representation of Jewishness. So, you know, particularly I'm talking about how Judah is engaging, I think, with Roman Polanski's vampire comedy, you know, from the 1960s, which is just replete with Jewish imagery, which, you know, Polanski knew intimately, considering, you know, where, where he came from and, uh, and who he was. This perhaps brings us back to, to something we talked about before, which is how does history fit into this conversation? Why is it that very clearly fictional you know, alternate universe, alternate experience, fantastical, you know, certainly in the case of Judah, depictions of things related to the Holocaust, you know, related to Nazism in World War II. What is the relationship between historical fact, right, historical reality, and fictional representation? You know, when we look at these TV shows, or more broadly speaking, the question of Holocaust representation in TV, film, etc., it's fact, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's in fact in, in quotation marks, but it's certainly fact that's filtered through that history of representation. I'm thinking of, you know, so one uh, scene in Hunters that's been attacked by various people, by the Auschwitz uh, Museum, uh, the, there's a chess game that's happening in a death camp. And so this Nazi, sadistic Nazi officer who's also obsessed with chess and kind of has this dreaming of becoming a great chess player. So he creates this chess game where the figures are the inmates. And the, and the losing side, they're just killed, right? And he there's this great Jewish chess player in the camp, and he picks him as, as sort of the organizing force there. And it's depicted quite graphically. You see these inmates who are the chess figures. The, all the female inmates are, are nude. A number of people have said that this is just, this is absolutely unacceptable. First of all, because nothing like that actually took place. And second of all, again, because it's just, it's taken that representation to to such an extreme where the actual historical event gets, just gets drawn. And so the creator, he wrote a response, David, David Weil, right, who's the creator of the series. And he said, you know, he comes from a family of Holocaust survivors. And so for him, this was this was the first series that he, you know, that he worked on. He said it was an extremely personal project for him. And, and he takes the responsibility of taking on the Holocaust topic ex- incredibly seriously, right? So can I just read just a little bit from his response? So he said, while Hunters is a dramatic narrative series with largely fictional characters, it is inspired by true events, but it is not documentary and it was never purported to be. In creating this series, it was most important for me to consider what I believe to be the ultimate question and challenge of telling a story about the Holocaust. How do I do so without borrowing from a real person's specific life or experience? 
So that's that's very interesting, right? So he says actually by not depicting something that actually took place, like this, you know, chess game, a scene, right? By not using real people, he is actually staying true to history, right? Here, imagination is actually more truthful when it comes to history than taking the actual events, right? Because ultimately, when you're watching these characters on screen, you know that they're imagined, right? Instead of looking at the piles of corpses, for instance, from the actual Holocaust footage, right? Which I, I always, I always tell my students when I teach this stuff, right? Just be aware of what you're seeing, right? Would these people, would, have, would they have wanted to be seen this way by you? You're looking at somebody who was actually was actually alive uh, once. So by creating imaginary, he's saying, I'm actually doing something that is much more morally responsible. And I think it's sort of even Aristotelian in some sense, right? Aristotle's famous distinction between history and tragedy. And it is actually tragedy through imagination that provides a greater insight. Part of the story here has to do with not wanting to appropriate people's stories. And whether that's for the purpose of monetization, you know, or a sense that you can never do them justice, you know, I, I think um, one of the things you wrote about actually also was the way in which the numbers on, on people's arms are actually higher than the highest number that we have seen documented, you know, on on somebody's you know arm tattoo uh, from Auschwitz. So in the sense that that fundamentally, you know, if you were to put just some random number, let's say one million, you know. 527 on somebody's arm, well, that was somebody's actual number, you know, some actual real person. He didn't want to appropriate that person into the story. And so there's a really interesting question here about the nature of cultural appropriation, the nature of what does it mean to take somebody's story, whether that's an author's story, right, or an ind historical individual story and transform it. And then there's also all sorts of questions about the nature of our relationship with the Holocaust, which is to say that I think that one of the bedrock assumptions of many people who think that Holocaust representation has to be as accurate as possible, you know, of course, it, it's connected with issues of fear about Holocaust denial and, you know, wanting to tell the story accurately. And, and all these things are, are very legitimate concerns, but it also has to do with the way in which how basically up until the present, there has always been the ability to have an eyewitness person tell the story of the Holocaust from their perspective. And, and, and we are entering into a future world uh, when that will no longer be possible because as people just get older and, and pass away through the passage of time, we can't say how many years it will be before the last Holocaust survivor passes away, you know, old age, but eventually we'll get to that point. And, and so part of what is interesting here is generally speaking, you know, and this, this ties in with all sorts of broader historical methodological issues of the nature of, of what we talk about is the limits of representation. But it's like, to what extent is it legitimate to tell a story that is fundamentally fictional about the Holocaust? The a Holocaust survivor's story is, in many respects, uh, though not in all respects, a direct relationship with the historical events. Uh, and, and of course, the major issue in terms of how we study history, how we talk about the past, is that for the vast majority of historical events, historical phenomena, we have no way of accessing that directly. And even in the case of a Holocaust survivor, you know, this is a person's recollection and memory can be imperfect, right? You know, wh what did I eat for lunch yesterday? I, I can't remember, right? The issue here is that people feel like we still have this direct connection with the Holocaust, when in many respects, the Holocaust eventually will, be, will become like every other event, the Napoleonic Wars, you know, uh, like the Roman Empire, you know, all sorts of other things that we can ultimately only reconstruct in our imagination, even through, you know, study of sources and so on and so forth. The fundamental paradox of studying the past is that we can't have a direct observation of what happened in the past. And so I think that there's this challenge of fictional representations of, of the Holocaust and of the Holocaust era in as much as people feel like we can still do this in a quote unquote authentic way, but we eventually will get to the point where everything is in some fashion through the viewpoint of imagination, whether that's the imagination of a scholar, you know, which of course doesn't make it incorrect, right? It's just saying that we have to imagine what the past was like because we couldn't be there, right? So whether that's through the imagination of a scholar or through the imagination of a filmmaker, you know, everything about the past is in some respects imagined. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that on a basic philosophical level, even though it's something that we as scholars kind of talk about, I don't want to say all the time, but it's a topic of conversation. Yeah, we're performing an imaginative and, and intellectual leap when it comes to it. But I think framework is really important. The sense of tradition and the set of references, right? When you have these very early Holocaust films right after the war, at the very end of the war, 
by let's say Polish Jewish filmmakers like Alexander Ford, for instance, or or some of the Yiddish filmmakers, they're very much looking at the Holocaust within a larger framework of how Jews have dealt with catastrophe for millennia, right? If you look at the case of this TV series, they have a number of frameworks and these kind of and and network of illusions in mind. They're unequal, right? And they have to kind of pick and pick and choose between them, and not all of them are successful. But again, ultimately, I think again, it's that. It's that framework. It's that f- framework that matters and kind of what traditions you filter your imagination through. And in the case of Hunters, I think what makes Wiles' point quite serious and interesting is that he is consciously aware of these traditions, right? And how Jews have, have approached it and kind of not doing it in a flimsy way. And ultimately, kind of as an artist, as a, as a creator of images, sort of taking a fresh, bringing freshness to it, which is, which is what we need. Right, because otherwise it just becomes stale and familiar and cliche, and then these images are dead. I think one of the other issues here is genre. None of these TV shows is actively trying to represent history as it really was, so to speak. And and on a basic level of genre, we're talking about science fiction, we're talking about vampires, you know, and these are plainly and clearly fictionalized accounts. Part of what's interesting here is that this reflects again this this scholarly conversation that's been happening, you know, now for almost half a century, right? You know, Hayden White's you know, landmark book on meta history was, I think, what seventy three. You know, so we're almost fifty years from that. You know, but this is a thing that came up in terms of the discussions about the Holocaust in the nineties, which is, you know, what are the different genres that you can that you can tell a story about the Holocaust? Here you see people, you know, going far beyond the question of can you write the history of the Holocaust as a comedy. You know, to the question of, you know, can you write, you know, science fiction about the Holocaust? And I think that what we see here is the broadening of the the narrative possibilities of people telling all sorts of stories about the Holocaust. And that is in some ways problematic, I guess. In some ways, it's also very exciting to see the Holocaust through so many different potential narrative lenses. Genre is clearly part of this framework uh, in this network of illusions. And again, I think, interestingly, it is up to genres like science fiction and and sort of or horror, right? Uh, it is up to them to kind of refresh our understanding of that event. In the book that I've just completed, I call it the Soviet Jewish Bookshelf, which kind of reconstructs post-Holocaust Soviet Jewish identity and mentality and shows how reading was instrumental in upholding Soviet Jewishness. I talk about the Strugatsky brothers, major science fiction uh, Soviet authors who were have Jewish, and there is Jewishness and Holocaust pretty much in all of their work. And the point that I'm making is that, and they were conscious of that, is that to really comprehend the enormity of the Holocaust, you have to do it through these imaginary, through this imaginary lens, right? Uh, through this science fiction lens, kind of this traditional mimetic approach. Uh, let's say, you know, writing a traditional novel uh, about the Holocaust doesn't get you there. Others will disagree, and you know, but I think, yeah, it is up to these genres that are so, so kind of centered on imagination. It is up to them to, to provide a, a really insightful look on the Holocaust. To what extent does history matter when we're looking at this kind of popular cultural production? You know, uh, does the history matter at all? Or is it just, in a sense, a writer's playground to do with as they wish? Uh, I mean, one thing that I might argue is that in a certain sense, a certain baseline of historical knowledge is, is necessary to understand these kinds of fictional works on their own terms, which is to say somebody who doesn't know that much about, let's say, you know, the Holocaust or about the history of racism in the United States will not be able to comprehend the man in the high castle, right? What the book or the TV show. And so you need a certain level of historical awareness to understand these kinds of, of fictional works. But at the same time, they're so very clearly unhistorical. So then what is the importance of, of history, you know, when we look at these fictionalized, it's not just dramatization of history, but it's sort of going way off into left field, you know? Uh, so, so why does history matter when we're looking at these things or, or should we be looking at them in a, in a kind of an ahistorical framework? No, I think, I think history matters. I mean, just to put it, to put it bluntly. And again, we are dealing, you know, call it the Holocaust, the unique event or, but it was certainly uh, an event of you know remarkable proportions. Unprecedented is a better term. And again, the Holocaust, if you look at the representation of other genocides, for instance, Turkish, uh, you know, the Armenian genocide, right? The filmmakers who have dealt with it have also drawn 
like Atoma Goyan, have really have drawn on the Holocaust and the Holocaust imagery. So the Holocaust is is important in that in that respect as well. But yes, history absolutely matters. And I think you know if we're going to use kind of the playground idea, then we we got to be responsible kids, right? When we when we play on that playground, that's what people watch. That's absolutely what shapes their understanding of history and. And it's, you know, it's the cultural moment that we live in. We should take it seriously and confront it and, you know, evaluate and, and explain. We've been talking about the ways in which it's important for us to, to understand, you know, the, the popular culture uh, in terms of its relationship with the past. But so what? You know, like what, what's the big takeaway here in terms of thinking about why it's so important for us to understand the relationship between popular representations of the past and actual history on the one hand? And these representations and the way in which the public's sense of the past is is also formed. Like, why is it so important for us to to delve into these issues and really think about them in in a really serious way? You know, that's how people have have dealt with understanding history through imagination and through these various genres. Uh, you know, be it Tolstoy's War and Peace, dealing with you know Napoleonic Wars, or be it uh, you know the Man in the High Castle, dealing with the legacy of World War II and what it means today. That's at the center of culture and the, and the mindset. You know, when I teach, I ask my students, because I always make cultural references, right? But let's say to, I don't know, Seinfeld or something else. And, you know, increasingly they look at me like, what are you talking about? And so I remember asking them, you know, a few years back, okay, like, so what cultural reference do I need to make that would make sense to you? And a lot of them said Harry Potter. You know, and I I haven't read Harry Potter because I, you know, came to this country when I was 16. So I didn't do that. But my son at that point was seven or eight. And I said, OK, let's let's read Harry Potter. And we read Harry Potter together and which was wonderful. But it's also th- so that I could have this kind of common cultural vocabulary with my my students. Now I'm thinking, you know, if I were to ask them, maybe it wouldn't be Harry Potter anymore. Maybe it would be maybe it would be something else. But it is part of that a common vocabulary that we are that that we're speaking part of what's interesting as you're discussing this notion of a shared vocabulary is that in many ways you know we are in an era where there is less and less of that shared vocabulary in american society globally as well you know and, and this is reflected in the breakdown of shared experiences, broadly speaking, whether we're talking about, I don't know, the people who reject vaccines and, you know, so on and so forth, all the way to, you know, the streaming TV environment where, you know, there's so much for people to watch. I mean, it's actually ridiculously ridiculous, you know, but we're in a world where nothing's shared in a sense, right? So that's, that's one aspect of it. And the other part of it is that when we think about the role of the Holocaust in the media landscape, part of the reason why it's been so prolific is because of the way in which the Holocaust has been a shared reference point for many people uh, in the United States in particular, as we get further and further away from the Holocaust in historical terms, right? You know, we're now, you know, 75 plus years, you know, since then, and we're going to continue to get further and further away from it. You know, the question is, to what extent does the Holocaust remain any kind of, of shared reference point for people in any sense? And so um, this is perhaps like a long rambling way of just putting it out there. As you're discussing the way in which, I don't know, like college students, they wouldn't get a Seinfeld joke. They would, certainly wouldn't get a Sopranos reference necessarily, let alone anything, you know, like Mad Men, all these other things that we may be familiar with. But, you know, for somebody who's a freshman or a sophomore, you know, in college, you know, they were kids, you know, they were, you know, toddlers when these things were coming out. Uh, and so, you know, the the issue of what is a shared cultural reference is, is really crucial where we're talking about the classroom or just talking about society in general. So do you have any kind of take on this in terms of thinking about what is the relationship between the transformation of social reference points and perhaps the fact that maybe there aren't any in general anymore and the question of the Holocaust in whether that's in the media or, or much more broadly, culturally speaking? We'll just have to see. I think, you, I think you're absolutely right. You know, that the fact that we live in this terribly fragmented society and we're all in our little little camps and, you know, tubes insulated from one another. Although I think maybe, you know, kind of this, these common cultural references, especially when it comes to, you know, movies, maybe that's now the only thing they can still unite, you know, those who are on the left and the right and say, oh, well, actually, that's a good movie and that's a good movie. And I remember watching that movie. So maybe there is something redeeming, actually. 
I mean, with the Holocaust, you know, the point that I've been making, you know, teaching it and, and writing about it for a number of years now, again, it's just let's rediscover that early Holocaust cinema, which I think will help us to appreciate more what these contemporary series are doing now. You know, it's not all about Schindler's List at all. And, and of course, Spielberg, I'm not discounting the significance of Schindler's List, but I think Spielberg certainly was aware of what came before him and somewhat kind of strategically de-emphasized what came before him. Let's rediscover that rich legacy out there. And I think that will refresh how we view the Holocaust in particular. Yeah, because there is just so much out there that's not just the general public is unaware of, but I think the scholarly public as well. I think the true history of Holocaust representation in terms of cinema and, and certainly television is yet to be written. Great. Well, thank you so much. You know, there's obviously so much more that we could discuss, you know, but I, I really found this conversation to be really, really exciting and fascinating. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode with Marat Grimberg. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.